This is Travis Willingham, the voice of Thor, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. I try not to go looking for it as much as I as much as I did um, back in the day. Um, you know, I I feel like I'm, I've, I've developed a pretty good uh, thick skin. I mean, I co-wrote an M Night Shyamalan movie, so like, you know, where else <laughs> where else is there for me to go? At this point? Hi, this is Chris Lewis in Williamston, Michigan, and this is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Episode twenty one starts now. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Another great episode coming your way on the internet waves. <laughs> Making Jamie crack with my my serious lameness. So what's up, Jamie? How you doing? I'm doing real well. Looking forward to today. I'll tell you that. We are interviewing the great Gary Witta about his first book that's coming out. Also, he is a screenwriter and he's written many different films that you've probably heard of. So Jamie's going to give him a little introduction. Yeah, Gary Witta, um, he's on the show today. To, we're primarily, we're going to be talking about his new novel, um, Abomination, which is out now. Um, but uh, he comes to uh, novel writing, I guess, um, from a screenwriting career. And you may know him. He wrote um, The Book of Eli. Um, he's done some comic book work. And, um, oh, he also wrote the screenplay for a little film called Star Wars Rogue One. What? What? Um, yeah, so <laughs> Gary wrote the screenplay for Rogue One. He actually named Rogue One. He it's, The title came from him. Um, obviously, he's very tight-lipped. Um, if he says anything wrong, like... George Lucas and uh, Bob Iger and everybody who holds the chains will just like converge on this house in black suits and sunglasses and and, and we'll never hear from poor Gary again. Um, but we do talk a, quite a bit about Star Wars. Uh, we talk a little bit about Rogue One as much as he's able to share. Um, and it's just a great conversation and we uh, we cover a lot of ground. So this is this is a treat. Now, I saw you teasing it yesterday on Twitter saying that he spills all. <laughs> I'm just... Yeah, man. That's, we, you know, we got it. it. It's all about the clicks. It's all about the, you know, right. getting, getting people interested. We and, to uh, So if you listen because of that tweet, we clickbaited you. Sorry. <laughs> no, all right. We're going to play the interview for you. Thanks for coming by. Fantastic. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, right off the bat, we're going to just start talking about Abomination, which is your brand new book out now. Um, and I guess backing up just a little bit, I want to know if as an author, was there one book or an author that really sparked your desire to write for a living? Um, I think as a kid, probably more than anyone, Douglas Adams yeah. was the biggest, um, influence on me. You know, I grew up in the UK, uh, and I mean, obviously, you know, he ended up being huge all over the world, but particularly in the UK, you can't really grow up without reading or, or knowing about Douglas Adams, um, you know, I, I I was a kid right uh, right there in the 80s when the original radio series and then the books 
and the TV show of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is such a huge thing. And it was just such a such an astonishing piece of imagination. I mean, like the, the just the density of ideas per page just really kind of blew me away and, and I think inspired me probably more than most, most authors. Before that, I, you know, as, as a young kid, I really loved the works of uh, Roald Dahl, who's I'm sure you know, you'll, you'll know his work as well. Um, and then later in life, as I, as I kind of got into the teenage years, I really got turned on to um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut as a, a, a big inspiration to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, for the most part, authors that, um, that kind of lived in that kind of genre, that sci-fi fantasy space, which is I'm sure why I do most of that kind of work myself yeah. these days. Yeah. Roald Dahl and Douglas Adams explain a lot. So <laughs> they're, uh, yeah, I, I love them both. They're just, it's fantastic stuff. So that, that's, that's great to hear. And now I get to read those Roald Dahl stories to my kid as well. It's like, yeah, I think like good children's stories, like the ones that really fuel the imagination, I think just live on forever because you want to pass that, you know, whatever spark that that author, you know, ignited in you as a kid, you want, you want to make sure you pass that on to the next generation. It's fantastic. I love, yeah, I do the same thing. You know, the books that you grew up loving and now you get to share them with your kids and it's just, it's, it's a fantastic thing to share. It's amazing to think, you know, I'm not necessarily the, a huge fan of the books myself, uh, but you think about like the Harry Potter books, like the, the huge impact that they made. You know, you, you go back and think about, you know, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe mm-hmm. and the Lord of the Rings as these classics of literature. But it's been really interesting, I think, to be part of a generation where the Harry Potter books came out. And you just know that they're going to be around for 100 years, right? They're, they're going to be passed down for generations um, as well. So it's kind of amazing to see that, you know, happen right right before your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Those are books that are just going to be read to kids at bedtime and kids are going to be reading them. They're just parents are going to keep passing that along. And it's it's still astonishing at just how big they are that kids just tear through them, too. I know. I I, I just picked up um, not even the second to last one the other day in a bookstore. And it's like a it's like a phone book. It's It's, huge. It's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) What I think I think the genius of that, though, is that is the way that the books kind of matured and grew with the audience. You know, you picked up the first book as a kid and you know you picked it up maybe like 12 13 years old but by the time you're like 17 or 18 you're ready to read something bigger and more more mature and i think it was very clever the way she approached those books yeah. kind of making them more challenging reads as the as the as the readers got older along with them yeah yeah that's a good point well yeah um, I, I completely agree with that my wife actually uh, we're we're younger and she was the age of harry potter when she first started reading it so she kind of read it along as he she was the same age as they were coming out so it was kind of cool and of course, the great the great story that I love to tell, my publisher loves to tell this story as well, is, you know, I think turned down by eight different publishers before it was picked wow. up, which I, I always use that as the example to writers, like, don't don't, don't give up because you right. never know. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's it's an inspiring story from a lot of different angles. But you're right. From a writer's perspective, it's a it's a powerful don't give up message. Can you imagine being one of the publishers that turned like there must be these guys out there, right? Like they're one of they're one of the readers at one of the big publishers that turned down Harry Potter. Like yeah. they, you just like you just never tell anyone. You, you do not own up to that. <laughs> not for like twenty years or something. It's like the studios that turned down Star Wars. You, you you don't own up to that until it's well past you know it's it's ancient history. You know? There's a there's a website out there, and I forget the the the, the precise link. Maybe I'll send it to you later. But it's something that I occasionally like to look at and it's something that I think is great um, inspiration for other writers and people that are trying to break in and are, and are getting the rejection letters where you can see I mean like the, you, and, and they have the originals like the original rejection letter for like U2's demo tape yeah you know the guy is saying like oh yeah this U2 band is not really for us and obviously went on to be the biggest band in the world yeah um, you know the rejection letter for when Fred Astaire was trying to break into Hollywood you know the famous line <laughs> um, can't can't act can't sing can dance a little bit <laughs> <laughs> 
And so, you know, what are these people? And like you said, Star Wars was, of course, turned down as well. And, so, and, and it's curious to think about it now this way. But back in the day, back in like 1975, Star Wars was just this crazy spec script that people had no idea, you know, what to make of it. Yeah, no, so, nobody, no, nobody could have anticipated what was going to happen there. Maybe, uh, maybe if you get like a thousand rejection letters in a row, give up then. But like, <laughs> don't, don't give up after just seven or eight because some of the most successful artists in the world have had at least that many. And save them, save yes, them. Yes, and save them for yeah. for for you know your um the library, the museum they will build to your that's legacy right, for your archives yeah, that's down right. the road. Well, let's let's talk about Abomination, um, which is available now, I believe. Um, where did it come from? I, knew, I originally wanted just to write a good old-fashioned monster story. A lot of a lot of the stuff that I write um, starts with com- kind of pulpy roots. Like the Book of Eli originally started as just wanting to do kind of my version of a good old-fashioned, like a samurai movie or a western. It was very heavily influenced by things like Zatoichi and the Man With No Name movies. I just wanted to do that kind of thing. And then you know, I added kind of the, the religious kind of stuff and the stuff that kind of made it a little bit more um, interesting, I think, uh, started later. But originally it was just wanting to do kind of the old-fashioned, you know, wandering hero type movie. And Abomination started with wanting to do, I, I guess in a way, a homage to a lot of the the old monster movies that I grew up with. You know, I love The Wolfman. I love, you know, reading Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when I was a kid. And even, you know, these days, um, you know, The Incredible Hulk is, is kind of carrying on that that idea of, you know, kind of the monster within, like someone who's got something within them that they can't control that represents, you know, the darker side of themselves. I always thought that was really interesting and I wanted to do um, – a version of that and, and trying trying to find, you know, a place and a setting and a character and a story that would service that idea is is where it really all started. The the book has been described as, you know, quote, Game of Thrones by way of HP Lovecraft, which is quite a claim. Um, and it actually is, uh, it, it's one of those lines that when you hear it, you're like, oh, I really want to read that now. Yes, that's why we put it on the book. Exactly. <laughs> it's a very smart move on your part. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but do, I mean, obviously you you like it and you agree with it. You put it on the book. Um, but do you think that that's a, a fair and accurate description? You know, in the vernacular of Hollywood where people say, you know, what's this movie? Oh, it's you know, it's, it's, you know, it's Star Wars meets, you know, whatever. And they just kind of mash up titles to try and give you like a quick shorthand of what to expect i guess i guess it's it's not it's not inaccurate in the sense you know i wouldn't necessarily claim to be you know on, on lovecraft's level or or george r martin's either but in terms of at least the subject matter and the worlds that you know, are kind of being um kind of mashed together here yeah i mean it's a fantasy piece it's got swords and magic and kings and stuff in it so you can understand why the game where the game of thrones comparison comes from and then lovecraft certainly was a very big um influence on the monsters that i wanted to create i really just on a, again, just on a pulpy level, when it set out to try and create the most horrendous, unimaginably, unspeakably disgusting monsters <laughs> you could ever imagine, and uh, obviously the, the work that Lovecraft did back in the day, um, leading all the way up to you know John Carpenter's The Thing was another big uh, influence for me. Like just trying to create stuff that is just so stomach churningly hideous um, <laughs> <laughs> that people that people would enjoy it just even kind of on a schlocky level. So yeah, it's it's not a bad comparison, at least in terms of the genres that are being mashed up. Why didn't you put, quote, stomach churningly hideous on the book? Because that's, that's, that's your selling point right there. <laughs> I, think there's another, I think there's another quote that says something like that. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually looking at the back of the book right now. And it's, you know, there's, I think it says, the, I, oh, my God, the word blood appears so many times. On the <laughs> now, they really... I haven't really noticed that before, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, I wouldn't call it a horror book because that's not really my, my thing, but I do think it's, I, I wanted it to be horrific in all the right places. And I certainly think it's that I've got a lot of comments from people saying, 
uh, this is gross, this is disgusting. But, you know, it, I, I, I take all of those as, as compliments. Good. As you should, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so is the book a straight-up fantasy or could it be called historical fantasy? Yeah, it's, it's, I think what's interesting about it and what I tried to do that would hopefully separate it from, from other fantasy books. You know, it's great that Game of Thrones is so popular right now and it really has. You know, I always think a rising tide lifts all boats and I think the, the popularity of Game of Thrones has created a halo effect that has opened up people, you know, to the fantasy genre. And we're seeing, you know, Shannara is going to be a TV series now. We're seeing a lot of these fantasy projects rising up and becoming popular in a way that I don't think would have happened if it weren't for Game of Thrones. But I didn't want to do, you know, I feel like there are so many of them now that it's like you have to kind of do something to try to distinguish yourself from those other stories. And so one of the, you know, kind of, I guess the big idea was to not go off and create, you know, another Middle Earth or another Westeros or another Shannara, you know, a kind of a, a mythical fantasy kingdom. Um, I'm kind of an amateur historian. I'm fascinated by English history. That's where I'm from. And so I thought it would be a fun idea to take a real time and place in history, in this case, um, England during the 8th and 9th centuries, uh, when England was under, you know, Alfred the Great was king and we were under heavy Viking invasion. Uh, and to take a, take a part of the, our, our mythological, our, our medieval history, and then add mythological elements to it, like throw in monsters and magic. And I used to be a big fan of, you know, the Harry Turtle Dove books, where it's like World yeah. War II, but now there's aliens attacking as the well. alternate history books. Right, so I, I'm fascinated by alternate history. And one of the great opportunities of the Dark Ages is that so little of the actual history is known and written down because almost, you know, very little, you know, written history survived that era. We call it the Dark Ages partly because it's kind of a dark page in history and we just don't know that much about what happened. So that was a great opportunity for me to say, well, maybe there were monsters. Who's to say any different? You know, maybe there was magic for a brief period. And so to be able to take, um, you know, to, to do the historical research and then add this stuff to it, I thought was really interesting. And hopefully what it does is makes the magical and the monstrous and the fantastical elements feel a little bit more grounded and believable because they're taking place in this, you know, real world historical context. Is this a world that you hope to explore further when in other books or stories and other media? I mean, we'll see. Originally, it did start as kind of a little bit of a world building exercise where I was like, okay, well, how, you know, how might magic have changed the world? And originally, I had these very elaborate story documents and kind of world building documents of there was, you know, there's this kind of epic war and this kind of dark age chronicle. And then I ended up. Uh, it's funny how the the, the the development process of a story often kind of contracts it down to just kind of the base elements you need. It's actually a very small story. There's 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 the suggestion of this bigger world and these kind of this kind of magical elements and a strategic picture of what ha what has happened to the kind of the English Viking wars with, once you kind of throw magic into it. Um, but then the story really contracts down and just deals with the lives of these two uh, particular characters. Um, the quote I always I, I always go from is you know James Cameron when he was making Titanic said you, you look at his story approach to the movie was I can't it's hard for me to make you care about two thousand people sinking on a big boat but I can make you care about two people yeah and that to me I think was a very clever way to approach it um, you know you can have yeah and, and I think all the great stories do this right I mean Star Wars there's a suggestion of this epic battle between the Galactic Empire and the Rebel Alliance but what we really care about is the journey of Luke Skywalker mm -hmm. so I think sometimes when you create these fantasy worlds it can be tempting to you know get carried away with the mythology and the world building and all the backstory stuff but at the end of the day what's going to what's going to make your story work and get and hopefully keep people turning pages is if you have some interesting characters at the center so the story ended up kind of distilling down just to this very simple story of these two main characters so you've written uh, screenplays video game scripts novels and comic books do you approach them each differently or is it just about fitting the story into the specific mold i think it's a little bit of both i think you know i think the rules for telling a good story 
are kind of the are kind of universal regardless of the medium. But then how you actually tell that story changes drastically based on you know the the various you know rules and pros and cons of each medium. My first language is as a screenwriter. That's what I've done for the last fifteen years. You know, I've worked on a on a on a bunch of movies. I think I'm pretty good at understanding that. You know, the, my, my approach to writing a screenplay is pretty well established mm. at this point. I, can't, I feel like I know how to do that. And I know the things that you can put on screen, the things that you shouldn't put on screen. Um, when you write a novel, part of the reason I wanted to do it is because there's so many different things you can do. You know, you can have internal monologue. You can lose yourself a little bit more in backstory. You don't necessarily have to structure the story according to the same rigid rules that exist in, you know, Hollywood filmmaking. So it was nice to have all of that, um, to have that, that liberty that I didn't have in the other medium. At the same time, it really kind of had to go back to square one and learn how to do it. Pretty much everything that I knew about how to write a screenplay became useless to me in writing a novel because it's such a different medium. And so, you know, I, I, as a screenwriter, I feel, I feel fairly experienced. So it was actually quite, um, it was, it was, it was both liberating kind of and scary at the same time to transition over into a medium where I felt like, you know, kind of a newbie all over again. <laughs> well, when you're talking about the different media that you've worked in um, and you've worked it a lot, so when, when you have an idea or a new idea comes to you and you think, okay, this is a story I need to write. Does that story also come with a specific format in mind? Like, do you immediately know, like, okay, this story is going to be a, a novel or this story is going to be a comic? Um, or is that sort of just revealed to you as you work out the story and you flesh it, flesh it out a little bit? Yeah, that's usually the beginning of the process when you have an idea. You know, we, we again, we live in a world now. We have so many different ways to tell stories, you know, where it could be a novel. It could be a movie. It could be a TV show. It might be a comic book. Um, you know, it could be an epic poem. Who knows? It could be mm -hmm. anything you want it to be. And that, you know, it could be an interactive thing, you know, it could be a, it's something that you put online. There's so many different ways to do it. So whenever I have an idea, I think the first question you kind of have to ask yourself is what is the, the best, most appropriate medium for this particular idea to be expressed in? Um, and again, my first language is as a screenwriter. That's the one that I know the best. It's kind of where I have most profile as a, as a writer. Um, and so my initial thought with, with Abomination was to try and write it as a screenplay. But then as I was looking at the idea, it's interesting. One of the things that I've learned for many years working as a screenwriter in Hollywood is to anticipate all the reasons why someone might say no to a project. Well, we don't think it's commercial or marketable for this reason or that reason. My story, for example, is set in medieval England. I guarantee you, if you pitch that as a movie, people are going to kind of switch off almost right away because they think, ah, oh, you know, there's all these rules in Hollywood about, well, people don't want to see period stories. They don't really care about stuff set in the distant past. They don't care about, you know, ancient England. And there's all these different reasons why if I had pursued it as a screenplay, um, it might have ended up, you know, just going on the pile of like, you know, the, the unproduced screenplays of which there are many thousands every year. Yeah. Um, and, and again, plus the, there were certain aspects of the story and the ways that I wanted to tell it that didn't necessarily conform to, you know, the typical kind of formula of, you know, a three act structure of how a movie, uh, a two hour movie is, work, is, is put together. So I thought, do it as a novel. I have the satisfaction of being able to tell the story the way that I want outside of the, 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 typ the, the typical strictures of, of screenplay storytelling. And I also had the, the luxury of knowing that when the story was finished, I had a finished product and not, you know, just the blueprint for what you hope one day will become a finished product. When you finish a screenplay, nobody really wants to read your screenplay. They want to see the <laughs> film. And so if the screenplay does not get produced into a film, it just sits on a shelf and nobody ever really sees that story. And for an author, there's nothing more frustrating than, you know, an untold story. Okay. And so part of the satisfaction, especially in this in the, kind of the digital age of Kindle self-publishing, was knowing that if I wrote the book, even if I couldn't find a publisher for it, I can go on Amazon, 
Uh, you know, people like Hugh Howie and Andy Weir have had ter terrific mm -hmm. success with this in the last couple of years, going online, publishing their story without any, you know, traditional, um, you know, framework, you know, in, in, in the form of a publisher, uh, connecting directly with the audience, with the readers and doing kind of your own promotion. And it is possible these days to have a huge hit. I mean, you know, perhaps not our, our, our favorite book, but, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey started that way, right? And it sold like 100 million copies. That would that originally started as, as self-published, wasn't it like Twilight fan fiction or yeah, something? That's exactly and, what it was. And now it's this massive, massive hit. So the traditional gatekeepers and the traditional, I think this is terrific. For all those people out there, I just met a bunch of them at Comic-Con saying, how do I get my story to in front of an audience? Like, how do I find an agent? How do I find a publisher? How do I get this made? Like the great answer these days, is you don't even really need to do that anymore. More. You can go on YouTube. You can you can find an audience already. Go on Kickstarter. Go on to you know my publisher Ink Shares is kind of a crowdfunded um, publisher. And so instead of uh, you know having to convince you know some anonymous people in suits that your that your project can make money for them, if you can just convince a few people to kind of chip in a little bit of money and 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 kickstart your project, you can find an audience for it. And I think that's I think that's terrific. And um, that's exactly why books like you know Wool and The Martian and even Fifty Shades have been able to find audiences that I don't think they they would have found otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's interesting though because those those three titles that you just mentioned, those are those are the the raging successes, but they're also far and away the exceptions um, yes. to the self-publishing model. And I'm wondering as a writer, I mean, I know this is your your first novel, right? Yes, that's right. Um, but as a writer with a lot of experience in in the industry, I'm wondering if you think would you still recommend that route to a new writer or would you would you recommend that they still try to go the traditional route well with me i mean I, i'll use my my example um uh as, as kind of a template for it i did initially again i'm coming at this as, as someone who really knew nothing about not just necessarily about how to write a book but then how to publish it and market it and sell it i know a lot of people in the film business if i write a movie script i can get people to look at it if I write a novel, I don't even necessarily know who to call. Like, who mm -hmm. who are the people in publishing? You know, like a year ago when I first started looking at publishing, thing, I couldn't even really name, like off the top of my head, like three major publishers. I can name every movie studio, but I don't necessarily know who the big players in the publishing world are. I slipped the I slipped the manuscript to a couple of friends who, you know, work at these publishers that I was able to, to find through mutual contacts. And they looked at it and kind of said, we like this, we like the writing, but it's kind of weird. It's this weird mashup of like horror and fantasy and um mm. and 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 uh, and historical stuff. And they weren't quite sure what to make it. Like we don't know where we can put this in a box. And this, this is what I've discovered is true, whether it's a major publisher or a major movie studio, obviously they're all about, they, these people aren't patrons of the arts. They're looking to make money. Yeah. And it's very important to them that they be able to kind of compartmentalize and understand and put into a box what the thing is so they can so they know how to market and sell it. If you've written something that is kind of a little bit weird or outside of that easily identifiable box, they don't necessarily know what to do with it and they'll probably say no. So that's initially what happened to me. I got the I, I kind of I got turned down by a couple of the major publishers. So then I started looking into went the exact opposite direction and looked into self-publishing. I sp actually spoke to Hugh Howie and Andy Weir, both of whom gave me tremendous advice on you know from the benefit benefit of their experience how to go the self-publishing route. And of course, it's very very easy to do. You can just go onto Amazon, press you know publish. Doesn't cost you anything. But then what, right? Like the book can just yeah. there's millions of self-published books out there. They can very very easily. Um, just get lost in all of that, that that ocean of stuff. And there's no guarantee that, you know, the cream, you know, just organically floats to the top. There's probably a lot of great books out there that will just never be discovered because the author didn't know how to market them or they, you know, sometimes the, the, the fire catches and other times it doesn't. 
Um, and so, you know, I had the luxury of knowing that in, if I were to go the self-publishing route, I've got enough of a following on social media and enough people that kind of like my work that I could probably, you know, bang the drum a little bit and get some people to pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, but then this other publisher, Inkshares, came along, which I thought was a really interesting kind of mix of the of the um, the traditional publishing model and the crowdfunding, uh, the kind of the self-publishing model, in that they have all the benefits of a major publisher. You know, the book looks great. You know, it's going to be properly distributed and properly marketed. Uh, you know, we're doing this publicity campaign for it right now. All of this stuff that I probably wouldn't have been able to do on my own, but because it's crowdfunded, um, there was there was there wasn't one gatekeeper or an executive there that said we will or won't publish this book. You know, you put the book up on the site, you publish a couple of sample chapters, you talk about what you want, what the book is, or what you want it to be. And if you convince, if you can convince, you know, five or six hundred people to chip in ten bucks each or whatever, then you that's enough money to cover the initial print run of the book. It's very much the Kickstarter model. Yeah. Um, and then obviously there's no again there's no guarantee. I mean, Abomination right now is just at this point just coming out. Whether or not it's really going to catch on, we don't know. But I had the luxury of being able to publish this book, uh, have an experience that felt very much like going through a traditional publisher, but without having to deal with any of the traditional publishing obstacles that you know uh, you might expect. So we're going to uh, talk about Star Wars for a little bit, and we're not going to try to get you to break any non-disclosure agreements or anything. Yeah, just to be clear, you're <laughs> going to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are going to talk about Star Me, me, <laughs> just me. Um, before you got tapped for Rogue One, were you a Star Wars fan? Oh yeah, I mean who? I mean, I, I mean to some extent, who isn't? But I certainly was in the right um, generation for it. You know, I was. Let me think. I would have been five when the original Star Wars came out. I saw all the original Star Wars movies when I was a kid. You know, wore out the VHS tape, had all the action figures. You know, I was. I was. I was very much of that original. You know, trilogy generation. And you know, they're 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 so fundamentally important. I think to our generation of you know the. the so many filmmakers talk about how, you know, the original Star Wars was the film that made them want to be filmmakers. And, you know, the original trilogy, I think, certainly played a very, very big part in me wanting to be a writer, you know, and to build these amazing worlds that you can transport, uh, you know, people to. Uh, it's, again, it's just, just such a pure product of imagination. It's just a, just an amazing piece to look. We kind of take it for granted today. But you got to remember what it was like for kids back in 1977. They had never seen anything like that in their lives. It just blew everybody away and, you know, and changed filmmaking forever. So, you know, I'm a product of that generation. Um, you know, when they announced that Disney had bought Lucasfilm and we're going to make, you know, episode seven and this whole, you know, Star Wars movies were basically coming back after a long period, you know, of, of you know, not being actively made. I mean, I, I, I still remember, I was literally where I was at the time when I saw that. I was standing in the line at Popeye's Fried Chicken. <laughs> and I was checking the, checking the um, you know, as, as I am wont to do. And I, um, and I was checking the news on my phone while I was in line. And I saw, you know, suddenly my Twitter feed exploded because everyone was responding to this news about Disney and Lucasfilm in episode seven. And I bashed out a quick email on my phone to my agent saying, you know, I'm sure you're getting a lot of these calls today. And obviously this is way out of my league, but like, you've got to, you've got to throw my hat in the ring. Like, of course you have to at least ask. Um, and, um, they said, yes, of course we'll do that, but nothing ever really came of it. And I just felt like the opportunity had passed. And I ended up taking a meeting at Lucasfilm where I, um, could just kind of talked about my, my general love of star Wars. And then somehow out of that, um, got offered the the opportunity to write this film, and it's still you know I'm done with it now. I've been done with it for a while. I think they're actually just about to start shooting, um, if not this week, next week. Um, you know, it still hasn't fully sunk in that it's that it's something that that I got to do. But so there's certainly the time that I was there working in Lucasfilm. You know, going to Pinewood and seeing you know the sets for Episode Seven and hanging out there was just 
um, just mind blowing. And you know, like it, it's 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 a thing that never really. I don't know if it ever really fully sets in that, you know, this thing, there, there were certainly times when I was writing the script when like the 10 year old version of me is standing over my shoulder, just like shitting his pants. Like <laughs> this is amazing. You get to do this thing. So it, incredible experience. You know, I'm so excited for the new films that are coming out, not just my own. I'm so glad that star Wars um, is back. And, and again, we talk about how, you know, we pass on uh, these things to the next generation earlier. I think that's true with star Wars. Now I think star Wars is now going to become, um, this, you know, this, this intergenerational thing where kids are not just growing up on the original films, but, you know, I think that, you know, this new movie that JJ's made, I think is going to be as magical and as important and as inspiring to this new generation of kids as the original films were to us in the, in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. If, if the footage that we've been given so far is any measure, then yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to live up to expectations. We yeah, know. I mean, it looks, you know, again, JJ's a product of that generation as well, yeah. right? He's, he's the kid that grew up with the original films as well. And so I think that, um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of love baked into that recipe. And it's, all, it's, it's coming from, a, you know, I don't know if you saw that little video that they released, the behind the scenes thing at oh, Comic-Con yeah. Oh, yeah. that actually was getting people kind of choked up, you know, because you could just see like the, the, the authentic love that there is for this thing. And people so, so genuinely want to honor the legacy of this thing, right? And and it's one thing to like do a Transformers movie. It's like, yeah, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, maybe you're excited about that. Maybe you like Transformers when you're a kid. But like, this is something that really, I mean, this is one of the great monolithic um, entities, you know, one of the cornerstones of, of popular culture. And so to have that um, opportunity to kind of, you know, uh, create a little piece of it and and to hopefully extend that legacy uh, going forward is is an incredible um, honor and a, and a terrific responsibility as well. I lost a lot of sleep the the year that I was working on it because when they announced it, I got two kinds of messages from people. One, one was like, congratulations. And the other one was, don't fuck this up. And so, and you know, that's pretty much what I said to myself going to, going to sleep every, every night and waking up in the mornings. It's this tremendous, this tremendous responsibility that you feel to get it right. And of course you're surrounded by incredibly talented people as well. And my, my piece of it is just, you know, one small piece of this huge machine. Um, but yeah, the, 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 that 10 year old kid was kind of following me around constantly saying, you know, don't, you got to get this right, dude. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've just touched on that. I mean, you say you never really get over that you're, you're in this sandbox and playing with these characters and the story that you've loved for so long. But I mean, creatively, how did you get over that hurdle and just be able to pound out the words and get the story out and not just be paralyzed by that? Yeah, I mean, you, it's weird. You just kind of do it, you know, like there's, and, and I've done this before with other things that I've, that I've worked on. You know, I worked on Akira. I worked on the Warcraft movie in one of, one of its very early uh, iterations. And those are all things that I came to because I loved those, um, those things. You know, I, I loved Akira when I was a kid. I read the comics. Mm -hmm. I loved the movie. You know, I played the Warcraft game to death. And so again, when you get an opportunity to kind of get inside something that you love from the outside, you do always have that element of fear. Uh, and again, that sense of responsibility, uh, you know, to do right by it, because you know there are millions of other fans out there that feel that feel the same way that you do. Um, but there's there's a point where you just kind of mentally just do it, and like the fan part of you, you just have to set aside and just act like a professional. And uh, it's it's it, it's a weird thing. I can't, there's no particular technique or a moment where I can say like this is when I was able to just like knuckle down and do it. Yeah. But it just it just kind of as it just just kind of happens as a necessary. Uh, part of the process. On March twelfth, you sent out a tweet that said, "Well, now I can, I can, sorry, well, I can now say that I named the Star Wars movie. That's pretty cool." Hashtag Rogue One. 
Yeah, I had been. It's it's funny because I had been. That was the day that they announced that the what the movie was about, and obviously I had known that for some time. And you know, again, Lucasfilm are so serious about secrecy, and rightly so. That's why I can say so little about it. But even what the movie was about, you know, the kind of the 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 um, uh, you know, the mission to steal the Death Star plans. Uh, was so, you know, obviously it's, it's such an incredible thing and you know I wasn't allowed to for a long time I wasn't even allowed to say I was working on a Star Wars film then that was announced and then for a long time after that I wasn't allowed to say anything about what it was about um, and I'm still to this day you know I, 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 I'm not allowed to say anything beyond what has officially been um, announced but yeah I've got like a, um, a Death Star like this cool Death Star rug in my uh, in my office here <laughs> it's this cool circular this big oversized kind of circular Death Star and I, when I first got it, I wanted to tweet out a picture. Like, but wait, if I tweet that, someone is going, <laughs> someone is going to infer something from that. Um, because again, when you when you're working in a universe like this that that, that garners so much attention, anything that you say, you're under even unintentionally, can be very, yeah, can be very easily misconstrued. Yeah. And so I was very careful about that. And so there's very, I was very satisfied to be able to finally post a picture of my rug on the day that the story was announced. Um. So Rogue One. Stick with me because it's going to sound like this is a question you can't answer, but I hope that okay. you can. Rogue One, it's going to be the eighth live action Star Wars film that's, that released. Um, not only, though, is it the first in what they're calling the anthology series, but conceivably it's going to be the first that's not about Jedi at its core. Um, and so with that out there, it, it's a Star Wars film, but it's probably going to be unlike any Star Wars film that anyone's seen before. So it's going to be very different from what everybody's used to and or expecting um so was it hard to keep all of that in perspective as you were writing i mean i just you know to, to some extent i just kind of do as i'm told uh and you know as you know it's really very much a director's medium and gareth edwards i think is very clear about what he wants the movie to be he spoke a little bit about it at celebration you know it's a kind of a you know a, i think he kind of want, wants to put kind of the war back in star wars and you know it's yeah. very much a war type film um, and I think he spoke a little bit about it being kind of a post-Jedi world. And I, guess, I, I think all that's very interesting. And so, yes, there, there are all these different things that you factor into when, you, when you're working on um, uh, uh, a movie like this. But again, you, you can probably tell that I'm kind of dancing around not really answering this question right yeah, now. that's fine. Because again, this is, this is all <laughs> super sensitive stuff. And I always have to be wary of not saying anything that hasn't already been publicly avowed. Yeah. Uh, by Lucasfilm. It's only about 18 months before the film comes out, and then we can talk about it. Then we can, yeah, we'll have you back you on, and you can. I'm just, sure that 18 months will just fly by. I'm sure it will, especially for you, <laughs> having to dance around all these questions every day. <laughs> um, well, I mean, taking that into consideration that you've got 18 months of press and people hounding you and begging you for information, um, I don't need to tell you that the internet just amplifies everybody's tiniest little grievance. Um, and when you're dealing with something like Star Wars, like you were just saying, you're totally under the microscope and everything is overwhelming. Um, as you were writing and now as you're trying to do press about other things and, you know, it always comes back to Star Wars or if you're doing something specifically about Star Wars but can't answer the questions, do you try to think about all those possible criticisms? Like, well, like when you... Yeah, I mean, of course. And one of the and, and this isn't even isn't isn't even necessarily a Star Wars related thing, but just in general, one of the things that I've discovered is very important to do just in your for your mental health as a writer is to step away from all of that a little bit. I actually 
used to be, you know, again, I've, I'm a fanboy. It's about, that's my background. And I used to be very vocal on internet forums. I'm still, you know, you know very easy to, to find on social media. Um, but I have backed away a little bit because you can drive yourself crazy looking at this stuff. You know, if you, I would like, I don't, I, I didn't, and I'm sure I probably won't ever like kind of dive into kind of the Star Wars you know, message boards and things like that. I try not, you know, to, you know, to go to, you know, to look at reviews of my book too much or anything like that. Like oftentimes you can't really help yourself, sure. but yeah, the, the, the internet is obviously now such a vast uh, resource for, um, you know, getting criticized <laughs> and it's pretty and much all it is you're doing is wrong <laughs> that, you know, spending too much time there, I think is, uh, is just profoundly unhealthy. So, you know, perhaps instigated by Star Wars, because obviously you, you, you realize you go into a higher level of scrutiny, as we talked about, but just, just in general, uh, one of the things that I've tried to do is to, is to step away from that. You know, I, I, there are certain things that you can't avoid, but I try not to go looking for it as much as I, as much as I did um, back in the day. Um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I've, I've developed a pretty good uh, thick skin. I mean, I co-wrote an M. Night Shyamalan movie. So like, you know, where else... <laughs> Where else is there for me to go at this point? <laughs> um, you know, you, once, you, once you've been there, you, you know, if you can survive that, I think you can survive pretty much anything. So, um, you know, like, but you can't help yourself, right? So I've got this book coming out. The reviews are just now starting to trickle in and they're good so far. But again, who really knows? You know, you, right. you, you have to really, you know, each, each um, I've spoken to other authors about this. And of course I've had two films come out that have been, you know, reviewed and, and people have their comments and some are positive and some are negative. And you try not to take any of them personally, but every author and every writer that I've ever spoken to, you know, they have the same advice, like, you know, don't get caught up in it. Um, you know, just take, you know, take, take the good for what is useful and, and leave the rest uh, behind. Because I think if you get caught up too much, you try to please people other than yourself uh, and getting, you know, caught up in what other people think of your work too much. It's just, it's not healthy. Very interesting. No, other than, um, you know, I, I, I love the, I love the work, um, that I did. Uh, I loved working with the people at Lucasfilm when I was on the movie. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they treat you like family over there. They're, they're, they're great. And then once I think they know that you're someone that they can work with and they're comfortable with you and you know, the universe and, you know, you're, you're all coming from a same place of love for it, that they want to, they want to, you know, keep that going. And so after I was done with the movie, they very kindly, offered me the opportunity to, you know, contribute some, some stuff to the, uh, to the rebels TV show. That's what I'm doing now. And again, that's in terms of details, there's really nothing I can give you. Um, you're working right now. I believe you're still at work on it on a reimagining of Oliver for image comics. Um, yeah. what I've seen, it looks really phenomenal. What can you share about that? You can go to my, you can go to my website and see a little bit of it. It's actually the first thing I ever sold in this business like 10 years ago. And again, wow. this is a good example of like, no matter how much, um, you know, the world at large, the universe might seem to be kind of putting up resistance to you getting your story told. Never, ever give up. You know, you'll always, you know, it's like life finds a way. Uh, and I think art finds a way as well. And I, I wrote Oliver originally as a screenplay something like 15 years ago. It was the first thing that I sold that kind of got me representation um, in this business as a screenwriter. Um, but again, the, you know, we, ne we were never able to sell the script. The movie never got made. And it always kind of frustrated me because, again, if you write a story – and it never finds an audience. It's like an itch that you desperately want to scratch. Like you want people to to see that story that you put so much work and time into. So I met, um, I became friends with a, a great comic artist, a, name, a guy by the name of Derek Robertson. Uh, and he and I basically took the screenplay that I wrote and broke it down and reverse engineered it as a comic book. 
Uh, and that's going to be some, and that's something that will be coming out from uh, from Image Comics. I think, if not late this year, early next. Excellent. Definitely going to be looking forward to that. So when we were uh, researching and planning for this episode, Jamie sends me a link to the YouTube show that you created, uh, Nerd Court. Oh, Nerd Court, yeah. <laughs> and I watched the William T. Riker episode first. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> and I, I'm a big. We're my wife and I are actually watching rewatching all of the next generation right now and i right. i laughed so hard during it and i was hooked i probably spent the whole day watching we were, so, we, we were so lucky to get him you know we had this idea for doing a, a a youtube kind of a comedy show of taking you know like those those daytime courtroom shows like the people's court and judge judy and applying that formula to the kind of arguments that we get into on the internet every day about you know could the USS Enterprise just beat up a Star Destroyer in a fight? And this kind of stupid shit that we argue about all the time. And like, let's put that in a formal, you know, let's place these arguments in front of a judge. And obviously it's tremendously silly, which is why we did it as a comedy show. And I've always been personally a big fan of, of Riker. I think he doesn't get enough credit on that show. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, have a, I have a friend who knows him very well, and I was able to reach out to him. And, and what a mensch. He agreed to do it. He came in. He was kind of the surprise witness in his own defense. Blew the doors off the place. What a pro. Just hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and did it for free and just and came to be nice. Here's like, here's like uh, this is one of those uh, times when you realize like it's just magical to be in this business. We had um, a cast member who was there who was a huge, huge uh, Star Trek fan. And he took up the trombone because of Riker. No. Uh, you know how Riker <laughs> plays the trombone? Yeah. And Riker plays the trombone because it just so happened that Jonathan Frakes can play the trombone. So it was something they added into his character that he could do. And it just gives him a little bit of color. It's like an sure. interesting thing he does. And there was a guy there. It was, there were people that had brought Star Trek things for him to sign, and he's always happy to do it. But there was a guy that brought, and he still had it, his first ever like trombone um, instruction, like the mu sheet music sheet book, music. like beginner's guide to trombone, like <laughs> the first songs you can play. And he said, so I was there. He went up to and said, Mr. Frakes, you know, it's because of you that I play the trombone. And this is the first book that I ever had. And he signed it for him. He just, like, just imagined one of those things where you're like, this the, just just the weird ways that the stuff that we do for a living yeah. can connect with people. You know, that there was this character that was that meant so much to people in Star, Star Trek, again, like Star Wars, is someone that we all grew up with. And like someone learned a musical instrument because, you know, they wanted to be like a character that they admired on that show. And so the, the, the different ways that science fiction and fantasy, I think, can can touch our lives and inspire us to go and do things that we might might not otherwise have done, I think is just magical. And I think that's a great place to finish. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you if if there's a season two of Nerd Court coming. Anything that we can know about? We're working but. on it. So I mean, we really just did it as kind of an experiment. Um, you know, we did these six ten minute. If you if you Google or if you type Nerd Court into YouTube, you'll find it. We did six episodes, which I think were fun. We do want to do more. Um, I think what we're trying to do right now is looking for like a sponsor, like you know, Nerd yeah. Court brought to you by whoever, yeah. and they basically pay all the bills. It's not a tremendously expensive show to make. Um, but uh, I think to go forward, that might be something that we're looking at. So I want to do it. I think it's fun. I think there's a lot more. I already have a list for all the cases that I would want to do. Like we only got to do six and there's like a list of a hundred initially that we wanted to do. Oh, wow. I want to do Pac-Man versus Mrs. Pac-Man. That's <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the next big ones. I love it. I love it. We have all these silly ideas. And of course, as usual, you know, you just need someone to, um, you know, to, to write a check to let us go do them. So we'll see. And the, the, some of the cameos you have in it are fantastic as well. I've, I really enjoy black nerd comedy Andre and I would love to see him in it too. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of an older guy these days. And so a lot of the stuff that, you know, the idea of kind of YouTube, I mean, VidCon's I think is coming right up, you know, the idea of this whole generation of like YouTube stars. Like I, I went and visited my, 
um, uh, my in-laws recently and like a eight and 10 year old niece and nephew and they don't watch TV. They watch YouTube. Like this is the, mm-hmm. there's a whole new generation of stars that have come up now that those, those, these are the TV stars of the yeah. next generation. And I kind of educated myself about who some of these people are. Um, when we, uh, when we put together nerd court. And so we were very lucky to get some of the kind of the rising stars of, um, uh, of, of YouTube and, you know, Malcolm Barrett, our judge, you know, who's been in a lot of really great stuff is tremendous. Um, yeah, we were, and, and, and the hope is that now that people have seen it, and basically get what the concept is. That if we do do a second season, we'll be able to, you know, hopefully get even more cool people for for a second season. We'll see. Hope so. Fingers crossed. I love it. I love. It. I, I recommend everybody watch it, and I recommend everybody starts with the Riker episode because it's just so. It's so oh yeah, good. it's by far the best one. <laughs> Actually, no, I take it apart. The Mario versus Sonic one, where it turns into yeah. like a Mario yeah. party at the end. Yeah, that's also. Great. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for joining us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. I always say I enjoy interviewing authors the most because they're so (laughs) (laughs) well-spoken. Well, thank you. And um, uh, yes, I hope you enjoy the book. You can get it on Amazon and uh, we'll see where it goes. But it's been great talking to you uh, about it with these guys. Do you have any social media channels you want to let people know how they can find you on the internet? Yeah, my main one, the one where I'm kind of most, you know, active is Twitter. And my Twitter name is just at Gary Witter. So at G-A-R-Y-W-H-I-T-T-A. You can also find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm technically also on Google Plus, but who cares? Those are those are the, those are the three main ones, and you can also go to my my, my website garywitter.com has I try to keep it fairly updated of right. you know the projects I'm working on the stuff I have coming up next. And that is it for this week. I really enjoyed talking to Gary. Um, I always say I even told that I we, I told him this during the interview. I love interviewing authors because they always know what to say and they always have so many great uh, stories at the ready for for us to talk about. That, yeah. make, that makes for a great conversation. I feel like going to blow up the Death Star now. Yeah. <laughs> or at least stealing the plans to be able to blow up the Death Star. Right. I I mean, how, I mean, like this film is such, I, I don't know, I'm just thinking about it. It's such a new direction for Star Wars. It's going to be really, really it neat is, to check it out. It's a new direction. And quite frankly, there's a lot riding on it too, because it's the first film of this anthology series. And I mean, it's Star Wars. It's going to make a bajillion dollars. Um, but, uh, I think a lot of the, the success of the series that they're hoping will follow really does hinge on this. So lots of eyes will be looking at this one with much anticipation. Do you know when the estimated date is that they're going to be done? Um, I could, I think, I I think he said they're just started filming this week or next week. They're just starting principal photography like this or next week. Um, I believe it's slated for May of next year. I can, I can, let me see if I can do some Google foo here. Um, mid, oh no, it's next December, right? Okay. Google's telling me it's December 16th, 2016. Okay. So one, one year, that's pretty cool. That's well, one that's year the, from that's the, a, apparently the business plan is that they're going to alternate years between the numbered episode films and an mm-hmm. anthology film. So this year we get episode seven, next year we get rogue one, 2017, right. we're going to get episode eight, 2018, <laughs> I guess is the Han Solo movie that was announced. And then just on from there. So. I, I don't know about you, but I think I can handle a Star Wars movie every year. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> I, I think can deal with that. After how many years, I think I can deal with it. <laughs> just as long as, you know, I mean, we, the uh, Lord of the Rings came out and everybody was all blown away by them. And I still love the original trilogy. But then by the time The Hobbit started coming right. out, I was like, oh, really? You know, <laughs> I mean, so it's like, I, 
I hope that that doesn't happen to Star Wars. I can't imagine that it would, but I can't. I can't. I hope that you know it's like this Christmas, your next Star Wars movie, and everybody just—it's like a collective eye roll. So I hope that doesn't happen, <laughs> but uh, it won't happen for a long time. I yeah, think. maybe by the fourth film. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> Thanks for coming by this week. Um, you can find us on Twitter at the GBB Podcast, same as Facebook, and you can find me at 140 C on most platforms. And Jamie is at the Roarbots. We're we're getting this down. Jamie is at the Roarbots. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.